0: We have been told over and over this season that FERPA is broken. It's very confusing. And it was written
1: so poorly. But it's too broad. And I think that is a massive part of the reason why it is still so widely misunderstood.
0: One attorney told us it is one of the worst written laws of history. So why hasn't it been fixed?
1: FERPA needs to be modernized. And we haven't really modernized it.
2: Their eyes glaze over when you start talking about things like FERPA.
1: From
0: the University of Florida's Breckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Gannam, and this is Why Don't We Know. If any other federal law was as broken as FERPA, it would have been fixed by now. I am confident in making that statement. But FERPA has remained vague, broad, and outdated for four and a half decades. I wanted to go to The Hill and ask people about it, but when I started reporting for this episode, we were in the height of COVID. So at first I went to The Virtual Hill last summer, calling folks on the education committees to see if they would join me for this episode to talk about FERPA. Most of the responses I got back were the email equivalent to blank stares. In normal times, as I'm wrapping up the reporting for this episode, I would make those calls again and see if I could get some official responses, even if they are no responses, but get them on the record. But I'm sitting here writing this on January 11th, five days after a domestic terror attack at the United States Capitol. So now doesn't really feel like the right time to be making calls about the problem of FERPA. Instead, I've decided we're going to explore some other factors that have kept FERPA alive for many years, and then we'll circle back to the hill, maybe in a month after a peaceful transition of power has happened, maybe in a few months after the chaos of the first 100 days. We'll see, but I promise that we will. So instead, I sat down at my desk, and after 18 months of reporting on season one, I opened up a Zoom window with Why Don't We Know executive producer Frank Lamonti. Hey, can you hear me?
2: I may have had it on mute. How to
0: talk that? about where we are and how we should wrap our heads around all of this.
2: Why is it, right? <laughs> like, we, we've got to this point. We've even heard from the guy that literally wrote the law that this is not the way it's supposed to work. This is not what's supposed
0: to So that you, too,
2: can wrap your heads around it. Why is it so hard to get people in schools and colleges to you know honor these requests for data even knowing that nothing's going to happen to them if they do
0: it's not one thing right which is why it's I kind of not wonder. one thing in fact in trying to figure out the last why of why don't we know why hasn't this been fixed we arrived at three answers first and in no particular order let's start at k street It's where a lot of the power lies in Washington. Any organization that wants to make sure that their interests are served employs powerful lobbyists to broker on their behalf. And universities are no different. Why don't we know reporter Connor Mitchell dug into this for us?
3: Collectively, the higher education lobby is a multi-million dollar industry with universities collectively spending about $61 million. And actually, that number has decreased over the last 10 years from about $110 million, mostly because of the elimination of earmarking.
0: Earmarking was this loophole, which was closed back in 2011. But it had allowed money for causes to be attached to legislation, even if that legislation had nothing to do with the cause.
3: Right. For example, back then, it was not unusual to see funding for a road project attached to a health care bill. But when earmarking went away, universities quickly realized they could no longer lobby their leaders to fund a new building or quietly water down policies that could complicate university operations. And so many stopped paying for lobbying.
0: But getting back to FERPA.
3: Getting back to FERPA. There is still a lot of money, millions of dollars spent every year, lobbying issues in higher education.
0: Enough. Enough. For us to conclude, that if universities wanted to lobby to change FERPA and to make it more understandable, less broad, they could certainly do that.
3: Certainly. In fact, the decrease in lobbying mostly came from smaller and middle-sized universities that don't have the budget to pay for a lobbyist to live in the nation's capital and advocate on their behalf. But many, if not most, of the major universities do still have lobbyists working on their behalf.
0: And I mean, it seems to me that they don't have a motivation to fix this flaw. Back to my conversation with the executive producer, Frank Lamonti.
2: Right. If you think of any other law, I mean, just envision imagine that there's some other law where there's a potential financial death penalty attached to it for your institution. Wouldn't you be up there trying to lobby as hard as you possibly can to get that penalty changed? Wouldn't you be up there just knocking yourself out saying, look, we can't possibly be held to this draconian law that threatens us with defunding? Of course you would, unless you like the law the way it is. They know. I mean, it's maddening really because there's only one category of people that are subject to the law. The only people who are actually regulated by the law are the people who like the regulation just the way it is. And so the people who are theoretically the most incentivized to get it changed, the people who are at risk of losing their funding, are also the people who are happy to leave it confusing.
0: Maybe schools like this confusion. I want to highlight something that attorney Laura Dunn said when we talked in episode 10 about how FERPA is used to keep sexual assault
1: cases secret. I think the more I do this work, the stronger the viewpoint becomes. When it comes to FERPA, I do think it is intent. There are absolutely times where schools absolutely know what the law says and what they could do, and they intentionally use, uh, choose not to. And then what grieving Parkland parents
0: told me when I talked to them for episode 12.
2: You asked about legislative desire to deal with these issues, like reformation of FERPA. I can tell you, having um, testified to the Federal Commission on School Safety and even the most dedicated public servants or legislators, politicians, their eyes glaze over when you start talking about things like FERPA.
0: Paige Kowalski, who is the executive vice president of the Data Quality Campaign, she told me that her organization has been trying for 15 years to have a conversation with lawmakers about schools hiding behind FERPA. But no one seems to care.
1: Overall there just hasn't been a lot of motivation or political will to try to move FERPA. And I think there are folks out there that are worried about if you open this law up, do people have enough knowledge? Do we know what a good federal privacy law looks like? Do we know how to write that? What are we basing that on? And I think that's part of you know what's driving that Lack of motivation around tackling FERPA.
0: Part of what she is saying is that laws don't move nearly as fast as technology moves. And so when I said before that there are no real conversations on Capitol Hill about updating FERPA, well, I need to clarify that a little. There are no real conversations on Capitol Hill about addressing the fact that schools are weaponizing FERPA to do things like keep sexual assault survivors from seeing their own records or keep parents from knowing how many guns were brought into their kid's school. What is being talked about?
4: Giant ...of being a monopoly gatekeeper for the internet. Google handles nearly 90% of what Americans are searching for on the internet.
0: ...is big tech.
1: What is the role of tech companies? I think we're... Big tech comes in and big data is that we don't really have access to what they're collecting about us. We don't know what they're collecting. Paige told me. There's been more of an emphasis lately around technology as students are using apps and online services more and more and more in their education. And certainly with this last year of a lot of learning at home."
0: And the fear about what information is being collected about students — that has sucked up the entire political conversation about privacy reform. Here again is Why Don't We Know reporter Connor Mitchell.
3: All of the recent legislative efforts to change or update FERPA, and there's not many of them, but all of them have been focused on adding even more provisions to the law in order to include the online activity of students from kindergarten all the way through college. There's a group called Common Sense Media. Are the thrills in The Expanse suitable for young sci-fi fans? It's a San Francisco-based company that was started in 2003 by Stanford law professor Jim Steyer as this place where parents could go to get ratings on the violence in video games. How gory and graphic is the action in Cyberpunk 2077. And over the years, it has morphed into an organization with a keen interest in protecting students' online data. Parents should know that this show is far edgier than any Star Wars story. And it has also grown exponentially. The most recent data we have shows its operating revenue is $25.4 million. And it has some really influential people on the board, including former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro, the CEO of Madison Reed, and two managing directors of Goldman Sachs. Plus, the Steyer name carries a lot of weight, especially in Democratic circles. He's brought us to the brink of nuclear war, obstructed justice at the FBI. I'm Tom Steyer, and like you, I'm a citizen who knows it's up to us to do something.
0: Jim Steyer is related to Tom Steyer, the guy who ran against Trump with a saturation
1: of TV ads?
3: Yes, Tom Steyer is Jim Steyer's brother. The family has been famous in democratic circles for years.
1: Uh, Common Sense Media has definitely been on the Hill and is a part of student privacy conversations. How do we ensure that information can be used by uh, schools and, and teachers and parents to to make better decisions about their students while at the same time protecting their privacy?
0: I mean, you say more of the conversation is about big tech and data sharing. But I would actually say all of the conversation is about that. Like I don't hear anyone on the hill talking about how FERPA is broken in the sense that students who are victims of sexual assault can no longer at times get their own records or that, you know, parents whose kids were bullied can't know the outcome of the investigation. Um I don't hear anyone ever talking about that at all.
1: I, I don't hear folks approaching the conversation from that from that angle either.
0: Anyway, back to FERPA. And then you've got these trainers who are telling every, you know, who also could Could have some influence or telling everyone that confusion is just fine, that it works in your favor.
2: Every time they go to a training session, they're being told that everything that you have is covered by FERPA and they're not being told that public records laws exist or that there's any offsetting interest in transparency or disclosure.
0: If the first part of this is a lack of motivations by universities to push for change and the second part of the problem is that the only real lobbying that's happening is for more privacy because of the fear of big data, Then the third part of this is the consistently bad training that school employees are receiving. It's something that we've heard over and over again this season.
1: People are not well-trained. People don't know what the law says.
2: They didn't understand the rules. Or they didn't understand what they should report and shouldn't report.
0: So I went looking for the people who are in charge of training.
4: I'm gonna go through, uh, hit the highlights of FERPA.
0: To see what they actually say in their FERPA sessions.
4: All right, can everybody hear me okay?
0: We found Good. one two and a half hour session given by one of the most prominent gonna, trainers.
4: Uh, and as all of you are sure are aware, we're gonna talk about FERPA today.
0: I clicked on it and I started to listen, excited to hear. What's being said about what I think is a really important and influential topic in education?
4: You know, hopefully you slept well last night and you can uh, stay awake for all of it.
0: Stay awake for it? Great, that's promising. This is Why Don't We Know. The backbone of this entire season is the research and reporting that was done by journalism students at the University of Florida. Support their work and our nonprofit journalism here at the Breckner Center by going to our website and making a donation. The money goes to make sure we can continue to pay students for their awesome work. You can find that donation button at www.breckner.org. There are two men who are very well known in the FERPA world. I think I can fairly say they pretty much have exclusivity over the cottage industry of training school officials about FERPA. When you read news stories about FERPA, you will often see one of these two men quoted. Their names are Leroy Rooker and Stephen McDonald.
4: Although it is quite broad, and although it often seems very confusing, the um, firm is actually very flexible, it's actually quite nuanced.
0: McDonald has made a career serving as legal counsel for universities, first at Ohio State and now at the Rhode Island School of Design.
4: We almost always are able to disclose information, what we really need to disclose. it. There's a community of
2: university attorneys that's kind of a tight-knit community. They go to a lot of the same trainings and conferences together.
0: Frank has been keeping tabs on these guys for decades.
2: And when you're a journalist especially, you call up that organization, you say, I need to speak to somebody who's your authority on FERPA. They always give you the same name. They always give you Steve McDonald. He's been the guy who conducts the trainings for other college attorneys for many years. And he's been the person who comments on behalf of the community of college attorneys when you need somebody to authoritatively give a position on what FERPA covers.
0: How did he become that guy? Do we know?
2: I think that when you do enough of those trainings, you become known in the field as the go-to person. I, I don't really know at what point he became that go to person. You know, he was involved back during his time as a university attorney in Ohio. He was involved with some of the formative litigation that really set the boundaries and the parameters for what FERPA covers and doesn't cover. There was kind of a pivotal moment in Ohio where the state courts and the federal courts were taking different interpretations of what was covered and not covered. And the state courts were telling universities that their disciplinary hearings had to be open to the public, and the federal courts were telling them, no, they don't have to be. And as a university attorney in Ohio, he was kind of right in the middle of that.
0: And what about Leroy Rooker? He came to be kind of a go-to FERPA guy by a different route.
2: Well, Leroy Rooker his credentials are obvious. He was the longest serving person to be director of the Department of Education's privacy office. He has been the go-to person for decades when somebody needed an authoritative federal interpretation of what FERPA covers and doesn't. It's no exaggeration to say that the body of Department of Education precedent that has been built up over the years is His handiwork, his signature is all over the way that the Department of Ed interprets FERPA.
0: And that's how Rooker ends up teaching many university employees how to interpret FERPA.
3: Presenting today is Leroy Rooker
1: who is the senior fellow at ACRO. He's, he's now senior
0: fellow with the American Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admissions Officers, where he's touted as the nation's leading authority on FERPA. He mostly does training, hence why I'm watching him in this two-and-a-half-hour video.
4: So at any point during the presentation, if you have questions, please ask them.
0: Yeah, I have some uh, questions.
4: We'll have some time at the end as well. but A lot of
0: them, actually. But if you
4: have them along the way... Um, do ask them, and we'll try and get them answered as they... Um...
0: But neither Leroy Rooker or Stephen McDonald returned my multiple calls and emails, requesting that they answer some burning questions we have about how FERPA is interpreted. So we turn to the public domain.
4: There are three primary rights that students have.
0: To see what they've been saying.
4: We almost always are able to disclose information when we really need to disclose it.
0: And how it's relevant to the discussion that we're having about whether FERPA is broken.
4: Those records would be relevant and you would get them through some process.
0: Cue the tape.
4: FERPA does not require that institutions maintain records. It simply says if you maintain them, you have to protect the privacy of them and you have to give the student access to them.
0: There are a few things that he said about privacy that might give us insight into why there seems to be so much fear of a law that has no real teeth.
4: So it's essentially, as I describe it, it's a FERPA liability on the part of the institution, because you've got all these records. And as such, you've got to protect them privacy wise. And you've also got to give the student access, so if the student wants access and wants all their records that can be a big job collecting them because they're a lot of places.
0: But the most telling thing about this training was what was not discussed. Never, ever was there a mention of sexual misconduct cases where so many FERPA issues often arise. There was no mention of public records laws and how they can often conflict with FERPA. And when they do, which one takes precedent? nothing about that. There was nothing about the public safety exemption, which schools almost never use, and not one acknowledgement that this is a public agency, a public university where there is an interest in transparency and disclosure and oversight. Mostly what was discussed were things related to outside vendors, financial aid, stuff like that. In fact, It was pretty dry. As promised, I had to try really hard not to fall asleep. It gave me flashbacks to training sessions I've attended. I'm sure you have too, where the presenter is so monotone and speaks in such legalese. It's painful. For a law that is so important and has so much impact, listening to this training session did not give me hope. And it made me wonder, are people asleep? Are they misunderstanding FERPA because they couldn't stay awake for this session? I mean, is this too harsh of an assessment?
2: Well, I had a chance to look at the transcript of that Rooker Hawaii training, and it's very similar to other trainings that I've viewed, other trainings that I've been to as a university employee myself. And there's a couple things going on. First, nobody in university land occupies a huge segment of their brain thinking about FERPA. As a university employee, you're getting trained in all kinds of compliance issues. And the amount of time that you spend mastering FERPA is very limited. So what do you get? You get really high level, big picture takeaways. And I think everybody's high level, big picture takeaway after they go through FERPA training is, everything we have at this institution is all a secret and you're gonna get in big trouble if you disclose it. That's the big picture takeaway that you get. And you're right. There's no effort in any of these trainings to balance accountability and transparency. There's rarely an acknowledgement that we should be making an effort, as every state's public records law says, to read the exemptions narrowly to maximize public disclosure and public access. You don't hear that because the Department of Ed under Leroy Rooker has always taken the position that colleges and schools are not supposed to think about transparency, they're only supposed to think about privacy. You will see this in the guidance that the Department of Ed has issued over the years, where they have this recurring phrase that shows up in their rulemakings, it shows up in their interpretations, FERPA is not a disclosure statute. In other words, we don't care. We don't care about state open government law. We don't make any attempt to reconcile FERPA with state open government law we just interpret privacy law to maximize privacy period
0: I mean it is strange though because when you when you start googling FERPA mostly what you find are are news stories related to title IX cases sexual assault cases and that's what we found in our reporting too and even though FERPA popped up in I mean, we could have talked about FERPA in almost every episode hazing concussions future episodes that we'll talk about bullying um, really it was title IX where it was the the best fit to really dive in, because those were, I I guess, some of the more extreme cases where there was a public safety issue. um, There was a lot of contention over whether something should be disclosed. You have a victim who has the right to their own record, was having trouble getting it. It just seems to me FERPA is such an important part of how the Title IX office operates. How could you have a two and a half hour training and not mention it?
2: maybe the assumption is that only a handful of people who work in the Title IX office are actually going to be handling those documents and they probably get all their own Title IX specific training. But it's a great point and it's a great question. How is it that the training seems to be divorced from people's everyday lives? How is it that the training doesn't apply itself? to the actual scenarios and situations that you might encounter as a university employee. That's how the training would be most effective, is you would walk through certain scenarios. and You would say, well, look, if you're involved in a Title IX case, here's what you can say, here's what you can't say. Here's what you should disclose. Here's what you shouldn't disclose. Those are the kind of things that would actually make the training useful and valuable and maybe not quite so snooze-inducing as what you saw.
0: I have some real questions, questions that only Rooker and McDonald can answer. So I emailed them. I asked, how can anyone think that it was a proper interpretation of FERPA to withhold the surveillance tape of the playground incident in Arkansas, where Brooke Moore's son was so badly hurt? How can it be justified that schools are withholding student records when they are involved in high-profile Title IX investigations? Why can't we know the punishments in hazing cases, or Title IX investigations, even with the names redacted? What about this case in Oregon, where a student sued her school over the mishandling of a sexual assault case, and the university went to the counseling office and took the woman's records from her therapist and used them as part of her defense? Nothing. No answers. Although our team did find this NPR piece— where McDonald defended that university in Oregon's behavior.
4: I would take in almost any case anywhere in the country. If you have an emotional distress claim, those records would be relevant and you would get them through some process.
0: They also had something to say about the fact that dozens of schools around the country are refusing to release the number of COVID-19 cases on their campuses. This is happening not just in higher ed, but also at the elementary level. Frank, they've come out and they've spoken about COVID-19 data and why it's not covered by FERPA. And I wonder if you think that conveniently contradicts what they said about FERPA covering the number of Title IX cases on campus, as we explored in Episode nine.
2: What's frustrating is that that same level of guidance doesn't always apply when you're talking about concussion numbers or Title IX cases or any other set of unidentifiable statistics. If COVID numbers are not individually traceable to a known student, then neither are Title IX numbers individually traceable. And so the guidance should be the same. The the people who are now safely giving out those COVID statistics without harming anybody should take a second look at what their privacy policies have been and whether they've been too restrictive, frankly, about withholding data that is in no realistic way ever going to be traced back to a named student.
0: It leads me to a very basic question that we have, but one that we didn't get to ask Rooker or McDonald, and that is, is FERPA confusing? McDonald has said no, he doesn't believe that. He believes FERPA is broad in a good way, because... Although it is
4: quite broad, and although it often seems very confusing, um, FERPA is actually very flexible, it's actually quite nuanced, and we almost always are able to disclose information Really need to
0: disclose it almost always able to disclose information when we need to disclose it. But that leaves the decision up to the schools. Attorney Laura Dunn addressed this when I talked to her for episode
1: ten. There's so many loopholes um, where there's permission to disclose, but not a requirement to disclose. And the schools obviously are not going to exercise their judgment in a way that adversely affects their interest. So no matter what is in the student's interest, which should be the only governing factor, um, the law has been written in so many ways uh, to allow schools to exploit it.
2: So I think the fact that you've got judges all over the country rendering irreconcilably inconsistent interpretations of the same law is evidence of confusion. If judges are confused, then how are the rest of us supposed to figure out what our compliance obligations are or what our entitlement to documents are? An example of the confusion, an object lesson in how confusing it is, is the way that surveillance videos are treated. You could go from state to state and find judges that will tell you for sure that they're convinced that a security video shot on a school bus that shows the faces of students is a FERPA education record, and then go to the next state over, and there's an equally certain judge who says that it's not a FERPA education record. And so the boundaries of this law are so blurry that it's impossible to know where your right to access begins and ends. And this is a federal law. It should mean the same thing in Ohio as it does in Pennsylvania, as it does in Florida. But it doesn't.
0: Also, FERPA is not a set of guidelines or a suggestion. It's a federal law. And a federal law should not mean two different things at two different universities or in two different school districts.
2: Yeah, I mean, to use the Silicon Valley term, the confusion is not a bug, it's a feature. I think that's what university and school district attorneys like the most about it, is that it is confusing, it is uncertain, there is no way of a layperson defining what is and is not a FERPA education record, which leaves the institutions able to define it.
0: And because it is confusing and broad, not just flexible, we see that happen a lot for example, in Kentucky and in California, where our data showed different kinds of records coming from different state universities regarding the same kinds of sexual harassment cases.
2: The problem with that is that judges are inclined to defer to the interpretation of the institution instead of applying their own common sense and good judgment. We saw that, I think, most profoundly in the Ohio State case, where you've got records that anybody with two cents worth of walking around cents knows are not FERPA education records. Stuff like the football coach sending emails to a booster about his players. Everybody knows that wasn't what Congress intended to be covered as a FERPA, quote unquote, education record. Everybody knows that. But because the university applied that characterization, the judge says, look, Who am I to second-guess the expertise of these universities? If they say it's an education record, that's good enough for me."
0: Schools should not be able to do whatever the heck they want. Because then you end up with scenarios like this one, where a student in Buffalo died on a football field, and the school decided it didn't have to release the video because of FERPA. Even though each week students play football on that very same field and it's recorded by parents and local news and no one complains, even though the whole purpose of the game is for people to come and watch, they cited FERPA as a way to keep that surveillance video from getting out.
2: For sure, school and college lawyers have figured out that this is a very convenient way of getting out of disclosure when it's embarrassing or scandalous for you. I actually sat on a panel a couple years ago with a college president from up in Connecticut. And he told me, he actually said to this room full of people, when you say FOIA, we say FERPA. When you say FOIA, we say FERPA. And then we sort it out later if FERPA really applies or not. So he was willing to acknowledge, I don't think this was an on-the-record conversation, but it was a training, actually. It was a training that we were at for attorneys. And he acknowledged that they kind of shoot first and ask questions afterward. They invoke FERPA first, and then they come back afterward, and they decide whether it really applies or not.
0: That's quite the admission. But the reality is, I was told many times that this idea of using FERPA as a cover, It's a well-known thing in education circles. And when we started this episode by talking about why things haven't changed, yes, it is the lack of university motivation. Yes, it is the focus on big data. But also, I cannot understate the influence of Leroy Rooker.
1: He was the individual who, when states and districts and schools had questions about FERPA, wanted clarification or an understanding of a, if a particular activity was permissible under FERPA they would write a letter to him at the department and ask the question
0: this is Paige kowalski again
1: and it, it would almost always come back as no it, it's not permissible and um, and he at the time um, I would hear him advise states that they should rather than you know writing these letters you know go out and have these conversations and do what they're trying to do and 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 go from there you um, and see if people would, uh, you know, claim a FERPA violation.
0: How much of an influence do you think he has, his interpretation has, on how people apply FERPA?
1: He had a very large influence. The National Center for Education Statistics used to host a conference twice a year for state and district data folks and IT leaders, and Leroy Rooker was always there to talk about FERPA and provide updates and answer questions, and I remember state data leaders would would go up to the microphone and, and bring up an example of something they were trying to do and asked if it was permissible, and you know standing in front of the microphone as a as an official from the US Department of Education he would his, his default answer was was no that's kind of how the whole field started to think about data was that we can't share it that was the default position we can't share it is rare
0: to find a quote from either rooker or mcdonald stating that ferpa is being misused can you explain to me the role that you know from from an outsider's perspective, how big of an impact do you really think these two guys have on how colleges interpret? And, and I guess from my perspective, I'm looking at it, you know, yeah, they may do a lot of trainings, but universities and their administrators and their attorneys still, I think, hold a lot of personal responsibility for making the decisions that they make. But how much influence over the confu- you know over over FERPA. How much influence related to the confusion and the misunderstanding of FERPA falls on these guys?
2: I don't want to oversimplify it or personalize it because it's true that universities all have their own internal trainers too. They're not all showing people Leroy Rooker videos or Steve McDonald videos. So there's plenty of blame to go around for the confusion. But McDonald and Rooker are sort of the two public faces of the higher ed legal community. If the two public faces of the higher ed legal community were to actually come out and say what we all know is true, which is this law is broken, it's dysfunctional, it doesn't do anything that it was intended to do, and it does a lot of bad stuff that it was never intended to do. If they would just come out and own up to that and say it publicly, Congress would change it tomorrow.
0: And instead, what's happening?
2: And instead, Congress has been sitting on their collective hands for decades. And we see these horror stories piling up where parents can't get videos of their own children's injuries or deaths, can't find out if the bully that attacked their child was punished or not. And Congress just sits on their collective hands because the people who have their ear, the people who represent schools and colleges in court, and the privacy advocacy community are telling them that the only thing wrong with FERPA is it doesn't cover enough. It's not broad enough. It's not extensive enough. It doesn't cover enough things. So all of the discussion on Capitol Hill is about making access worse and not better.
0: I know that the problem of access is not something that's unique to public education, but It does feel like after a full season of reporting on this, that FERPA adds this extra layer that you don't have when you're talking about um, bars to entry or lack of access to documents in any other kind of agency reporting. And I wonder if you can talk about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's both a law issue here and a mentality issue here. And when you're talking to educational institutions, you know, so often they have the mentality like what's good for General Motors is good for the country, right? What's good for the superintendent, what's good for the principal is good for the kids and good for the families. And so they confuse their own self-interest with the public's interest. They think, well, this works great for me and it does work great for them. Works great because they can turn down the request for information that they want and they can appear virtuous in doing it oh, we'd love to help you. We'd love to cooperate you. We'd love to be more transparent. We'd love to be more forthcoming, but our hands are tied by this law. And you understand we have to value the funding of our school. We have to value privacy. So it enables them to deny requests for information that would be inconvenient or embarrassing to them and to wave the virtue flag in doing it. So I think that's what's going on. There's both a law problem, that the law is hopelessly broken. It's written in a way that nobody can understand it and nobody can coherently apply it. But you've got a mentality problem, too, that... Education institutions don't tend to think of themselves as government agencies. They don't tend to think of themselves as part of the government in the same way that the EPA is or the Department of Transportation is. And they they kind of see themselves as being above public accountability. And that's just a mentality shift that's going to have to change along with the law. I think we should talk about the fact that if you roll all the way back, if you telescope the lens all the way back, and you think about the transparency issues that we've been talking about throughout this series of the podcast, the starting point with open government laws is always that when the public has any interaction with a state agency or a local agency, that interaction creates a trail of public records. And there are good reasons for that, even if those records, frankly, are something that people find embarrassing or uncomfortable to share. You go to the courthouse to get a divorce, that creates a public record. You sell your house, that creates a public record. You get a speeding ticket, that creates a public record. And those laws are there for a reason. It's not because we're nosy. It's not because we're voyeurs. It's not because your divorce or your speeding ticket are of any particularly profound interest. But it's so that we know that the government is doing its job fairly and reliably and honestly. So that we know if people are getting their tickets fixed, or we know if VIPs are getting their divorce files sealed, or their divorce cases expedited, or if certain judges are not giving alimony to women because they're sexists. We need to know that stuff. And the only way we know it is through rigorous enforcement of these disclosure laws. And schools and colleges are no different, they're not above the law. They tend to think of themselves as occupying this kind of rarefied place because they're doing God's work educating kids. But some of them are not doing a great job, and some of them, frankly, are not run by honest people. And the only way we find that out is through the enforcement of disclosure laws. And so, yeah, you know, there's a tendency to think that, well, we're dealing with kids here and we have to, There's no such thing as too much privacy, we have to. Enforce privacy laws at all costs to protect children. But, you know, so often it's the case look at juvenile detention centers, look at mental health facilities. Anytime you have people that are sort of in this custodial setting where people in authority have a lot of power over their welfare and their safety, privacy doesn't end up actually working for them, privacy ends up working against them. Privacy is why we can't go inside a juvenile detention center and see if kids are being abused. Privacy is why we can't go into mental health facilities and see if they're squalid. So privacy is a great thing until it's not. Privacy is a great thing until it's weaponized to actually isolate vulnerable people from getting help.
0: If you asked me one thing that I've learned this season, it's that that we've all been conditioned to believe that privacy is for the good of the vulnerable, that it is there to protect them. But in reality, a lot of times, privacy hurts the vulnerable. It keeps those who could step in and help, like advocates, journalists, lawyers, lawmakers, from being able to do so. I started reporting for this season a year and a half ago, trying to figure out why so often I found myself writing the same horrible stories over and over again without any real change. A redshirt freshman was rushed to the hospital after he had collapsed during Charged those in a
4: fraternity hazing death.
0: See, weeks of constant bullying caused him. His University
4: life. student
2: killed in a fire inside an Austin apartment that she was renting with the friends.
0: University of Kentucky under fire tonight, accused of failing to properly investigate accusations of a sexual. Chromosome. I went to
1: a couple fraternity parties where I was grouped. to When a student
0: attacked him and sent him to hospital with multiple injuries. We begin our
4: program with broken hearts in yet another American town, which today became the site of yet another deadly school shooting.
0: And I think after 18 months and more than 50 interviews, the closest answer I can give is that many schools have lost their way. Instead of transparently dealing with recurring, known problems like fraternity hazing and head injuries, sexual assault, bullying, campus safety, and other issues. Instead, schools hide from them because they're afraid to deal with them publicly. It's an image thing. For decades, we've bought into this idea that schools are places for the free and open exchange of ideas. That's how they've always promoted themselves. But you can't have free and open exchange of ideas when only a handful of insiders have access to complete information. What universities seem to have become, it resembles more of a big business.
4: This issue of, you know, private interests versus public interests, you know, is really the major question for these public
3: institutions today. These massive university systems that have billions of dollars.
0: There is more privacy and secrecy and not as much oversight. PR machines first. blatant dishonesty, um, lack of cooperation. I didn't feel like valued as a human being, like for a second that I was there. Institutions of learning second. It reminds me of something that the public relations officer at my own state university used to say to student journalists like me when we were covering news there. He'd say, why should I comment on your story? If I comment, the story has life. If I don't comment, it goes away. A little later in my career, as I covered other universities, I realized that this was not an isolated practice. In fact, it's the norm. It's not just common, but it's well known that university officials will ignore, distort, and flat-out lie to journalists. Typically, they do it off the record, sowing doubt in the reporter's mind in a way that can't be traced back to them. Fifteen years ago, when I was a student reporter, I didn't really know how to respond to these tactics. Even though I knew it was wrong in my gut, I didn't quite have the perspective to say anything about it. But I have something to say now. The reason, Mr. Chief Communications Officer, that you should respond is because at an institution of learning, a public institution of learning, the aim should be to do better, to make lives better, to enrich the young people who attend your campus so they can become better and in turn make society better. The aim should not be to cover things up because you might temporarily look bad. That is not your mission. That does not promote learning. Unless, of course, you count the lessons learned from bad behavior, like the lesson that I learned from the chief communications officer at my school, because that was the most powerful lesson that I learned in college, one that my tuition dollars did not buy. And making sure that these kinds of stories don't go away when officials like him fail to comment or count or provide data, well, that's what motivates my reporting each and every day. This is the last episode of Season 1 of Why Don't We Know? Over the next several weeks, we may drop a few extras here and there on topics that are timely, But regular episodes will not resume until the fall of 2021, when we premiere season two. It'll be focused on secrecy in the criminal justice system. As always, thanks for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, with additional reporting by Connor Mitchell. The associate producer is Tori Whidden. This episode was edited by Amy Fu. Music for this episode and the entire season was composed by Daniel Townsend. Audio mixing was done by James Sullivan. The executive producer is Frank Lamonti. This entire season of Why Don't We Know could not have been achieved without the tremendous reporting of students at the University of Florida. They are Camille Respis, Joseph Hastings, Jessica Corbello, Brittany Miller, Gabriella Paul, Angela DiMicola, Mariana Fiello, Brianna Edwards, Adriana Marino, and McKenna Beery. In addition, our phenomenal and patient edit team includes Amy Fu, James Sullivan, Luke Barientos, and Matthew Abramson. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information as well as updates, please visit our website at www.whydon'tweknow.org.